Can we? So I'm just curious. I'm not a huge banana fan myself. Me either. I'll have it like you know. If it's somebody made me a parfait, I'll be very, very uh, <laughs> uh, gracious about it. But generally, it's like. Yeah. Have any of us tried a different type of banana? Well, I love plantains. Does that count? But I, yeah. mean, I eat a banana maybe maybe twice a month. That's rare. Yeah. That's more than I eat bananas. I, I eat... love bananas, and I'm devastated. Do you really? How often do you eat bananas? Like if like citrus fruit or bananas, like I love bananas. Yep. Welcome to Biologists Being Basic, a podcast where we talk about basic research, why we care about it, and why you should too. I'm your host and resident basic biologist, Robin Cake. Each episode, I'm joined by fellow UCSF scientists, as well as non-scientist friends, to ask questions, talk science, and have fun. This week, we talk about bananas and the fungus that threatens them. Specifically, we're going to look at the Cavendish variety, which are the yellow bananas that most of us in the United States know of and eat, and Panama disease, which is caused by a fungus called Fusarium wilt or Fusarium oxysporum. In this week's episode, I'm joined by fellow B3 hosts, Joe and Kelsey. Hi, I'm Joe Hyatt. I'm a graduate student here at UCSF. Hi, I'm Kelsey Haas. I'm also a graduate student here at UCSF. As well as our non-biologist expert human, Sean. I'm Sean Miner, and I am a non-scientist civil engineer. Couple notes before we get started. As with our last episode on the common cold, this episode was also recorded before the COVID-19 pandemic back when we could all sit and record in one room. And while recording, we got the idea that it would be fun to try different varieties of banana and record our reactions. So we are releasing that session as a special bonus episode that should appear wherever you get your podcasts. There's not really that much science in it, but it was a lot of fun. Okay, so with that, let's get started. While today's pod is going to be focused on kind of the basic biology research, um, mostly about banana plants and their susceptibility and resistance to this fungus. Um, We do want to note that bananas have a pretty storied history uh, for both kind of the global good and bad, Um, and that we want to take a quick step back from the science to just kind of stress the importance uh, that this fruit has had on global economies and cultures um, in both past and present current um, events. So at the top, we, we were, we all discussed and we wanted to note that while this is not our area of expertise, we really want to acknowledge the fact that the history of banana growth and banana plantations is one fraught with um, pretty terrible occurrences, especially in Latin America. Uh, One of these cases where, one of the first cases where the U.S. really exported the negative externalities of of um, their consumption. So it involved essentially the enslavement of a huge number of peoples and governments uh, in Latin America um, in a, a way that I think is um, still uh, rearing its ugly head today. Um, and if you want to learn more about this, uh, there's been a number of, of great books written on the subject, and we'll leave those in the show notes. So if you want to learn more about bananas and kind of their history, there's a really great book called Banana, The Fate of the Fruit That Changed the World by Dan Coppell. There's also an audiobook version of it, which I highly recommend. It's a really great book on this. So basically the story today is that bananas that we eat, the Cavendish, are 
pretty much being killed by this fungus called Panama disease. It's caused by the fungi Fusarium wilt uh, or Fusarium oxysporum, which I probably butchered the name, but moving on from that, um, basically it's starting to wipe out all of the banana plants uh, in the world now. So um, Kelsey, Joe, Sean, how much do you know about this threat to bananas? I know that bananas are in danger of dying, and the banana that we know as it is now may not exist in the future. I just know that uh, the Fusarium wilt is uh, slowly but surely spreading, and it is inevitable. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I, I was really surprised to learn, learning about this banana blight, this tree terror, this arboreal apocalypse. Plant terror. <laughs> Plant terror. Yeah, bananas are plants. <laughs> Oh, not trees. Okay. Mm -hmm. Plant. Uh, I need a new alliteration. <laughs> Plant <laughs> yeah. problem. Wah, wah. <laughs> I like it. We'll work on Plant it. Predicament. Yeah. Plant predicament. Thank you, Sean. That's much better. Nailed it. Um, is that it happened before? That it, that the banana we have now, the Cavendish, is a far inferior to the Gros Michel banana they had big previously. Mike. <laughs> the big Mike. Um Apparently, for people who tried both, uh, and that this Panama disease came through once before and, and totally wiped out this monoculture, and uh, the Cavendish was a uh, resistant replacement, uh, but it seems like time has run out on that as well. Yeah, so the first iteration of Panama disease um, was, yes, caused by the same caused by the same type of fungus, same species of fungus, uh, although the strain was TR1, so... TR, tropical strain one, um, and the current strain that is threatening the Cavendish, which was resistant to TR1, um, is TR4, and the Cavendish is not resistant to TR4. So there's something about this new strain that makes it um, more potent or more capable of infecting uh, even a larger variety of species than the first strain was capable of infecting. And this TR4 right, has been in banana plantations already in Asia and Africa, but has only recently been identified in Latin America, right? I think just late Correct. last year they found it in Colombia. Yeah, so um, there were, was a lot of efforts to try to contain the fungus and to prevent it from getting to the Americas. Um, but they did, yeah, in the last uh, maybe year or two, find that it was in the Americas now. Um, I think it was just November 2019 that they first confirmed it, right? Was it? Okay. Or October, November 2019 in Colombia. There was a cool press release from the Instituto Colombiano Agropecuario. I'm so sorry for my Spanish. Uh, that was Kelsey talking, by the way. That <laughs> uh, that said that for the like first time they had Kelsey. seen. Sean's right there. <laughs> it's, it's Kelsey's fault. Um, but that it's probably been here for a while, right? So once you've once you've verified it, they think that it's been it, it's been present for a while. I see. Got yeah. it. Yeah, but yes, I think you are correct. The first sequenced verification. Looks like August 2019. Nice. Okay. Well, not nice for yeah. banana growers, but... But go facts science. are important. <laughs> go science. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the um, 
basically this new strain has now made it to the Americas and now bananas here are being threatened as well. Um, and one of the things uh, I wanted to talk to, uh, to Joe and Kelsey about is the idea of these clonal populations and why they are more vulnerable to disease than say a heterogeneous diverse population of plants, animals, whatever would be. So um, Joe, maybe you can talk about what makes a clonal population more vulnerable? What is a clonal population? What, what do we mean by clonal when we say bananas are clonal? Sure. I mean, so, so clonal in this case means they're all clones, right? Just like in popular culture. So they're all gen genetically totally identical. They're not grown from seeds as brand new plants, not trees, as I just learned. Um, they're actually made, taken from cuttings of a mother plant. So they are really all one identical plant, even if they're separate individuals. Um, and what that means is they're going to react exactly the same way to a new threat, a new pathogen uh, like TR4. And so if one of these trees, plants, excuse me, is susceptible to TR4, they're all going to be susceptible to TR4. Um, and interestingly, this is really a consequence of the idea of getting cheap bananas uh, into supermarkets in the United States, that if you're going to have a, a banana that's grown thousands of miles away from my supermarket in San Francisco, um, there's really only one room in that pipeline for one banana that's going to behave identically all the time. All the time. So um, this again stems from some of the awful things that United Fruit Company did uh, in Latin America, where they were granted a certain amount of land alongside a railroad they grew, and so they needed one type of banana that would mature exactly the same, that would uh, grow nicely. Um, that would be easily palatable to American consumers, meaning bright yellow and nice and sweet and a predictable size and shape. Um, and so uh, these plantations focused on a single crop that uh, worked nicely for transport. So it could be cheaper than apples, even though it was traveling thousands of miles. Uh, and as a consequence, we have this very vulnerable population to pathogens because there isn't any of that heterogeneity in response. Like you were saying, there aren't multiple different, uh, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, um, abilities to respond to a new stimulus, right? So if one's going down, they're all going down. Right. And, and Kelsey, maybe you can talk a little bit about if you're a diverse population, like what does that mean in terms of your resistance to pathogens? So if you're a diverse population, everybody has slightly different versions of the same genes, right? So the, there are small changes within a gene that everybody has um, that can confer protection um, or susceptibility to a given disease. And so it's kind of like hedging your bets, I guess. And so if, if everybody is different, at least someone will be protected. So like if all the bananas were diverse, at least one banana could be protected theoretically. But if everybody's identical, then there's no chance for um, maybe like a genetic variation that would confer protection. Yeah, um, and I think what's particularly makes a banana particularly vulnerable is that it's a cutting from a parent plant so even if there was heterogeneity within the cell aggregate that could have resisted a disease, the likelihood of you isolating that one particular area that was resistant 
is very, very slim. So the idea that you might, you know, happen upon a clonal variation that had a mutation that protected it against disease is pretty much zero. Um, the chances of it happening are very, very small. Um, so part of what makes bananas that we eat so vulnerable is that they're just always going to be identical to the parent that they came from. So there's no chance for like spontaneous mutation in a banana. Right. And unlike how some species made, such as humans, <laughs> there's no recombination of genes either. So there's no, um, no chance to introduce any sort of diversity to these plants to provide any sort of selective advantage over anything. Right. There's no sex going on in these mm -hmm. plantations. At least, yeah. <laughs> at least banana sex. No banana sex. Um, so something I've been wondering is, is when we talk about the heterogeneity in human populations, is a lot of that happens in uh, our immune genes, right? Our, there's one cluster of genes called the MHC genes. That's a, a big one in terms of diversity and how we respond to pathogens. And, and maybe one of these episodes, we'll talk about the smelly t-shirt experiment that suggests that <laughs> I know this one. Yeah. it's the best experiment. Uh, I like that one. Um, in a nutshell, that uh, if you just have a, a, a woman smell a uh, um, sweaty t-shirt and decide from, different guys, from right? different guys and decide which one is the most attractive, that that woman will pick um, the one that's most genetically dissimilar to herself, uh, suggesting there's this advantage to, to having this heterogeneity that we've been talking about, right? Um, although not if the woman is on the pill because then her body thinks she's pregnant. And so potentially there's this evolutionary drive to actually be with family and be safe, right? Be the, with the people who are similar with you to protect your child. But despite the digression, the point is, is the, we have these immune genes in our immune cells that are promoting diversity to allow us to have the sort of different responses to uh, pathogens and, and allow us to not be susceptible to these crazy outbreaks like are happening in the Cavendish now. But um, banana plants don't really have immune systems the same way humans do, is my understanding. So how would they defend themselves against a pathogen? Right. And, and Kelsey and Joe, you guys both study human pathogens and disease and understand kind of the human immune system, um, where in the human immune system, we have special cells that go around and basically sentinel our body. And they're kind of, you know, while our regular cells also have kind of innate defenses, the immune system writ large is kind of what clears everything. Right. We have these dedicated cells, mostly our white blood cells, that are really just there to protect us. Yeah. And so plants don't really have a sentinel system. They're, they don't have immune cells that go you know, in and out of different cells or different parts of the plant's body, per se. Um, plants have what are known as disease-resistant genes or R genes. R like the letter R? R like the letter R. R correct. genes, got it. R genes, yeah. Um, and basically, these uh, are what protects plants from pretty much everything that tries to kill the plant uh, that microbe related, not human or mm -hmm. animal related. Not so, the chainsaw. Yeah. Uh, so these kind of genes can protect plants from bacteria, viruses, fungi, nematodes, insects, uh, all the little things that basically are pathogenic to the plant. 
the largest family um, are called nucleotide binding site leucine rich repeat proteins or NBS LRR genes for short. The important part is that half of this protein or one of the domains of the protein is responsible for detecting the pathogen and responding to it either by directly binding to the pathogen, directly binding to something the pathogen secretes, or by kind of monitoring these type of like sentinel proteins that the plant produces, seeing that they've changed and then initiating a response. By binding to these other kind of response elements, that is the signal that basically sends the alarm throughout the plant. Uh, and essentially the downstream effect is that the plant then tells that cell basically kill yourself. So it apoptoses and tries to prevent the spread of infection by killing the infected cell. Mm. And so that's usually how the plant tries to prevent uh, pathogens from spreading. Got it. So that first half of that is similar to we like humans also have leucine rich repeat proteins, right? Those LRR uh, monitoring proteins. And the mammalian cell equivalent, I, not equivalent because uh, there's some debate about whether this was a convergent evolution or um, uh, the like are called nod LRR genes. Uh -huh. um, and they're thought to act similarly where they send the response of, mm, I should die. Right. Uh, something bad has happened. I should I shouldn't be um, part of the larger organism anymore. Gotcha. But with humans, sometimes the response is uh, is locally okay. Kill yourself, uh, and sometimes the response is also okay. Let's let's get help here. But it sounds like plants don't have that option to recruit helper cells to the location, and so the answer is really just to choke off the infection. Am I understanding that right, Robin? Yeah. So that seems to be kind of the plant's response is there's not a immune system to go around and kill the thing that's invading. The idea is to, I, I guess, almost quarantine the pathogen and then get rid of it that way. Got it. So I have a question about that then. Uh, obviously, in the case of the Fusarium wilt, that defense mechanism is failing because the plant inevitably dies, can't reproduce. But how... How, how would this work in a, uh, I guess, a successful instance of it only killing the bad cell and not killing the surrounding cells? How, how, how does it limit the uh, infection spread? Because it seems like for the Cavendish banana, that's not occurring. Um, so, Sean, that's a good point. And actually, in um, some of the research that scientists have been doing, it's actually thought that this defense mechanism even in the banana plant, is actually what's leading to the whole plant's death. So it's an over-response. The plant is clogging up its own vascular system by, like, dying so much and basically starving off nutrients and water to the remainder of the plant, which actually ends up killing it. Meanwhile, the fungus still gets into the vasculature even though it evaded the plant's you know death signals and spreads throughout the entire plant. Um, I don't know if I have a great example of how plants have successfully overcome this 
by death. Um, I know in a lot of situations, there are pathogens that are pathogenic in some plants, but not pathogenic in others, meaning uh, it would get inside and just kind of coexist okay. So maybe there isn't a response against it and the um, bacteria or virus or fungus just keeps producing inside of that plant. Is that similar to how the TR1 didn't affect the Cavendish? Oh, that's a good question. I want, I don't actually know why TR1, why Cavendish was resistant to TR1. That'd be a really good one to look up. Yeah, we'll have to follow see. up on that. Um, my guess is either Cavendish was resistant because TR1 couldn't get inside. So TR4 does actually get inside of the plant. Um, a lot of Fusarium actually just exists in the soil and never gets inside of the plants. And so they never get exposed to it on the interior of their kind of vasculature. And so they never have a problem. Um, and there are, um, for TR4, it does get in through the roots and basically invades the inside of the plant. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. How did Cavendish resist TR1? I know, so there's kind of this interesting story, um, or this interesting research where um, scientists took human anti-apoptosis genes. So inside humans, we have the same type of apoptosis signal. If the cell thinks it should die, it will signal to have a safe death, basically, apoptosis. And there are genes that prevent this from happening. You wouldn't want all of your cells to just kill themselves. So uh, your cells naturally regulate that process. And so scientists took a human gene that naturally regulates apoptosis and one from like C. elegans, and they put it inside banana plants and saw that the banana plants that had those genes were actually resistant to the TR4 and survived TR4 infected soil. So there's something that is about these genes that like conveyed resistance of these plants to this thing that kills all the natural plants. Is, uh, is it because they are uh, a monoculture or clonal? Is, is that why they can't, uh, I guess, large scale introduce that to the banana to save it from TR4? So there are groups that are trying to do this. Um, there are groups that are trying to not necessarily take these ones that have human or C. elegant genes. They've now done a lot more experiments and have found um, a gene that's naturally occurring in um, a different species of banana plant. Um, this is called RGA2. Um, and scientists have now put the, that resistant gene into the Cavendish, and that banana is resistant to Fusarium wilt also. So they're thinking that this would be a nicer, more natural art alternative. It comes from a banana plant, and to see if they can kind of move this natural banana gene from one banana species into the other banana species um, and create a resistant Cavendish banana. And so kind of these tests are actually ongoing right now. They've done one field test first, um, uh, at least from what I've read, and they're doing the second field test now. So um, we'll see. Hopefully um, there will be some new banana plants uh, that could potentially be available to 
people who want them. But um, going back to your question about whether a monoculture is why this is such a problem, you could definitely imagine that this this sort of kill yourself response to the fusarium could be successful if it wasn't such a plantation monoculture situation, right? If you had banana plants dotting a jungle somewhere and one of them encounters this fungus and quickly kills itself so there's not more fungus, it might protect the rest of the the bananas in the area provided uh, they're not super dense and close. One of the amazing things I've read about this fungus is that the spores can survive in um, in the soil for decades. Well, so that's terrifying. Right? It's or bananas. Pretty much, and that, like, it can basically, like, once it's there, it's there forever. Right. Because it can go into other species. It can, it, right, it can replicate in other places. needs to be, like, heated to crazy temperatures to destroy it. Like, definitely outside of the realm of what you're going to see in normal weather. And In that case, it sounds like it's better to try and protect the banana than try and eliminate the threat. I mean, and, and the other thing to remember is that the banana is kind of a luxury item for the plant, right? It's a, a reproduction organ. So it's only going to make bananas if things are good and it has an excess of nutrients. So if they're struggling, like, and this is also true um, if you look at the diseases, the citrus blights that are affecting orange trees, that the trees will still be there, but they're just not going to make any oranges. So if you're a, a banana plantation runner, there's got to be a word for that, um, then you're going to be very sad. Maybe. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll ask a banana plantation yeah. runner what he or she prefers to be called. Um, you're going to be very sad, even if your plants are still alive, if they're not making fruit, right? So, uh, Although in this case, it does kill all the plant. Does Well, or yeah. the plant is killing it, itself. Eventually, yeah. yeah. Or the, yeah. yeah. It stops bearing fruit, and then months later, it's yeah. dead. Right. Um, and even the ones that can produce fruit... The fruit ends up like blackened on the inside too, and gross, yeah. right? I've seen some it pictures. Comes, yeah, it's it, worth a, a it Google image search. Being really gross. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, there are obviously a lot of really brilliant scientists. Uh, James Dale in Australia is probably one of the more well-known um, scientists who's trying to study. Uh, this disease in bananas and come up with strategies to uh, save the Cavendish. Um, He's the one that's doing a lot of those genetic experiments, um, trying to provide bananas with resistance genes that will prevent them from succumbing to the TR4 strain. Um, But uh, Joe, Kelsey, and myself, uh, we are... Uh, biologists and basic researchers, but not at all plant scientists. Uh, And even though we study uh, diseases, uh, ours tend to fall under the uh, human variety (laughs) and not not fungus either. Um, But as I was reading the research that a lot of these scientists are doing um, on the fungus and on bananas, I just kept wanting to apply kind of my own type of research <laughs> to these uh, to these problems and kind of just curiosity to uh, know more about both the fungus and the banana. Um, and so I kept writing kind of notes in the margins to say, like, oh, it'd be really cool if we could study kind of the protein-protein interactions between the fungus and the banana. Fungus are also 
made up a lot of proteins, and those are also the kind of action molecules inside of um, a fungus. Oh, I like that, action molecules. I'm yeah. stealing that. <laughs> action molecules. And so these kind of uh, action molecules can be um, released from fungi or on the surface of fungi, and I think it'd be really interesting to see, like, what is the fungus releasing into the banana and see kind of when it's released, what molecules does it interact with on the banana end and to see kind of like how those are coming together what's the purpose of them coming together is the banana purposefully trying to interact with the fungus protein or is the fungus protein kind of overtaking the banana by interacting and then all of the downstream signaling pathways that might come from that as well so just to make sure i'm understanding what you're saying robin that the the fungus, like a lot of other pathogens, can hijack the lines of communication in the cell. And, and if we can also tap those lines of communication and learn what they look like before and after that hijacking, we can learn a lot about what the fungus is telling the cell to do. Does that sound right? Yeah. So I, I think it's twofold. You, we're trying to learn how is the fungus basically taking these networks inside of the cell that it's infecting and rewiring them so that it can do the thing it wants to do. Uh. And so you can study how it's doing that to understand how it's kind of overtaking these um, pathways, but you can also study it to learn how the cell is responding. For instance, if there's an alarm going off inside the house to try to expel the invader and make them leave, uh, how that cell is responding to a pathogen it can expel versus a pathogen it can't expel maybe the invader knows how to like turn the alarm off so uh, we can go back to sean's question of why the cavendish was resistant to tr1 uh when the grow michelle was not but it's not resistant to tr4 so we can look at how the alarm is behaving with with tr1 and how it's not behaving with tr4 and try to understand what's different and how we can maybe help the banana behave towards TR4 like it was behaving towards TR1. Does that sound right? Yeah. Cool. So why is the Cavendish the banana that's predominantly sold in the United States? Or like, why is it the, the predominant banana? What makes it so cool? So Joe alluded to this a little bit earlier. Um, it actually wasn't the first banana sold in the United States, the Gros Michel, or the Big Mike, um, as it was affectionately called, was the original banana sold in the United States, and what most people considered the superior banana in both taste and durability. Um, there were a lot of properties that made it so good for export to the United States. Um, and Joe, maybe you can help me with some of these kind of main points. One of them was its durability. It didn't bruise when you basically slung it over your back and threw it into a crate and hauled it across the ocean to get to the United States. Um, part of it was that it had a very reproducible and controllable ripening mechanism that they could do. So it's transported in these refrigerated cars. You hit it with ethylene and it starts to ripen and it becomes a nice yellowing color that um, was appealing to people in the United States. 
Um, and part of it was that it tasted good. <laughs> it didn't have seeds. It tasted good. It uh, was considered a healthy dessert fruit. Um, and it uh, came in uh, a nice little pre-nature made wrapper. Um, at the time, kind of there's a lot of uh, health considerations and people thought it was this very kind of um, uh, a good way to stay healthy and to be protected from dirt and pathogens and bad things. And so it kind of had this little wrapper around it. Um, right. And, and so I think all of those things were taken into account when they had to pick a replacement for the Gromi shell when the first Panama disease happened in the 1950s. Uh, and so the Cavendish has a lot of these same traits, right, in terms of the way it grows and the way it ripens and the color it is and the size it is and the general sweetness it is. Although I gather that the Cavendish is, uh, from people who have tried lots of bananas, kind of an inferior banana. Yeah, I, no from what I've read, uh, most people think the Cavendish is kind of like the boring bad banana and if you look online there's pictures of like bright fuchsia and blue colored banana i mean like the banana is really cool yeah and and so this bring us back to to robin's question about like as a scientist how do you think about this issue um one of the things that i really thought about was actually tomato plants uh so there's this guy at, at cold spring harbor labs uh whose name is zach lipman who's been working on engineering tomatoes and he's found the specific genes that are responsible for the degree of branching of the tomato and the size the fruit gets to before it falls off and the color it turns when it ripens. And all of these same kind of approaches I was thinking you could take to bananas also. So if he found a banana that maybe didn't fulfill all of the requirements that the grummy shell and the Cavendish did that we just talked about, right? The coloring and the size of the bunches and the stability and the maturation. But had some important characteristics, namely was immune to this terrible fungus. Um, maybe one way to go about it would be to start with this banana that's immune and then figure out how to engineer it to be more, um, uh, a more appropriate staple food crop, right? Easier for monoculture, easier for transport, easier for maturation. Um, and so that was something I thought a lot about. And actually, if you Google these engineered tomato plants, they're really spectacular because um, making small changes that you wouldn't think in like the degree of branching of the, the stems has huge impacts on the amount of fruit that can be harvested from a given plant. And those same kind of approaches, I think, would be very well suited to uh, coming up with a, a sort of an uber banana that had the flavor and had the resistance but also had all of these characteristics that we value economically for making sure we can get a, a banana for 99 cents at every grocery store and gas station in America. I think one of the things that also, like kind of to the point of how to get bananas back, even if the Cavendish goes away, is the Cavendish was actually not as transportable as the Gros Michel. And the companies that transported it had to engineer new types of transport mechanisms to keep the more fragile Cavendish from becoming bruised on the transport. So they engineered these crates that the bananas could grow in instead of just throwing the bunches around. And they came up with this innovative way of protecting a more fragile banana. So there's additional ways that you could think of taking what would be quote unquote an inferior banana, one that had maybe thinner 
skin or a thinner peel and engineering a way without engineering the banana <laughs> to get it to be transportable. So I think, you know, as biologists, we think of it from the plant side, from the biology side. Can we make a gene that makes the peel thicker? Can we make a gene that makes the banana ripe in a certain way. And yes, they do know some of the genes that are involved and the proteins that are involved in the ripening process. Um, enzymes that basically degrade the plant's material and into making sugars. Um, but there are also just kind of human engineering features that could be come up with to make bananas easier to transport or maybe um, have a different ripening mechanism. So th there are things that can be done. It's just whether there's a will to do them, uh, which seems to be the kind of bigger <laughs> hurdle to get over. Um, and that's all talked about in Bananas <laughs> by Dan Kopel. It's a great book. <laughs> Highly recommend. Um, yeah, I was amazed to find that like supermarket chains have huge gas-controlled, temperature-controlled rooms for storing and ripening bananas. The only, uh, I guess, uh, part of the change between bananas that I could, I guess, uh, more, uh, I guess, speak on more so than uh, all the scientists here is maybe just the infrastructure is specifically designed for the Cavendish, just like it was specifically designed for the Gros-Michel, you know, 60 years ago or 70 years ago. And every single fruit company that is harvesting and selling these bananas only cares about their bottom line. So they have these routes set up to bring the, to harvest the bananas in a specific container made for the, uh, the Cavendish. They bring it, it takes a certain amount of days and then they put it in these gas control containers where, and the warehouses where they store them, everything is set up just for the Cavendish. And if you have any other banana, it just won't work the same way, and that's a large amount of capital that they would have to spend just to switch to a banana that they don't even know consumers are going to want to buy. So they don't have the incentive right now because, as far as they care, my plantation doesn't have TR4 at it yet. I'm still making my money. So to get that infrastructure shift, there needs to be a financial incentive for them, and they don't have that yet, which is part of the problem of, uh, I guess it makes it more, the situation more dire from what I see because they know there's a problem, but they don't feel the need to act on it yet. They have the ability to, but they aren't because they're still making money and they will for, you know, another five, 10 years or however long it takes for the TR4 to take over. But by then it might be a lot harder to regain the traction with a new type of banana. Thank you for joining us today as we discussed the banana apocalypse. As a reminder, the next episode in our feed is going to be the bonus banana tasting episode, which again is going to be heavy on shenanigans and light on science. But we hope you join us in two weeks when we talk with our very special guest, Professor Pascal Guiton, about a parasite called Toxoplasma gondii. We want to extend a huge thank you to every person who is doing their part during the pandemic, wildfires and storms, to keep us all safe, to feed us, to heal us, to keep our daily lives running, and to help support a diverse field of researchers, first responders, and medical professionals. Thank you to everyone who is doing their part remembering to wash your hands, 
keeping up the social distancing, and in wearing your masks when you're out in public. We know that times are hard and confusing, so thank you so much for doing what you can to help. We hope our podcast can be a source of information and maybe even entertainment during these challenging times. In our role as scientists, we always aim to be as accurate and precise as possible while still communicating plainly. But in case we didn't do this, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about what we said in this episode, or if you just want to say hi, please reach out to us at biologistsbeingbasic at gmail.com or at biosbeingbasic on Twitter and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and we will do our best to respond. Also, if you're interested in any of the books or research that we talked about in this episode, please see our show notes. And if you like this episode and potentially want to hear more, please like and subscribe. We want to thank Professor Nevin Krogan, who is our boss and the director of QBI. And we want to thank UCSF and the Gladstone Institutes, who are our employers. We would like to thank our guest and friend and all-around awesome human being, Sean. And thank you to Alexa Rocourt and Michael McGregor, who are our sound engineers and producers. Our music has been Catalyst and Passport from Purple Planet Music. And finally, I want to give a last message. We don't always do this, but as scientists who are predominantly supported by funding from the NIH and U.S. sources, we want to remind everyone to please register and vote. If you can, please vote early and be safe. It has never been more important to make your voice heard. Thank you, everyone. I really want... I think it's called a blue java banana. It's supposed to taste like vanilla custard. They grow these (laughs) in Hawaii. And apparently it's like so, so good. American Association of Immunology Conference is there this year. I guess we need to submit an abstract. This is how... What are you here for? The blue java banana. (laughs) I mean the important sessions on... This is how scientists travel is you find a conference that's uh, in an exciting location and you find a way to present your research (laughs) at that conference. Please don't fire me, Nevin or Alex. (laughs) This again was Kelsey talking. (laughs) Yeah.